I would invite you to turn back in your your Bibles to the 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 11, and we get to the really good part of chapter 11, the part that's not at all controversial, controversial, because it's a portion of scripture that consists in a doxology, uh, an expression of praise, an expression of worship, an expression of adoration to the living and the true God. Of course, the context of it we've been looking at in past weeks. Paul is discussing this whole question of Israel's unbelief, and he has given something of an understanding of why it is that the Jews did not receive the promised blessings of salvation when Christ came. And part of it it does consist in the realities of God's sovereign will and purpose, but then again, there's also the matter of their own responsibility, of their future, of their failure to submit themselves to the righteousness of God. But again, Paul's addressing this matter is, is not just a matter of speculation or conjecture. It's not just that we can walk away from this passage saying, oh, I figured it out. I figured out all the ways that God works in the affairs of men. No, you haven't, and, never, and you won't ever. But with respect to this matter, it's really a question of pastoral concern for the problems that are existing in the church in Rome that there was this arrogance on the part of some towards others, Gentiles towards Jews. And I'm sure it was reciprocated on the part of the Jews to the Gentiles as well. And Paul has to address the problem of their pride and their conceit and their arrogance and um, to bring them to see that uh, they ought to be rejoicing in the way in which God's worked, what he's done, that it was such a mystery, something that could never have been understood except God came in the gospel and revealed this, that this matter of Jewish unbelief is a question of opening up the door to the Gentiles to receive um, God's covenant blessings and God's standing in his grace. And that means they shouldn't be boasting in this because it's not of them, it's of God, it's of his grace. Um, They certainly shouldn't be boasting over the Jews or having some sort of a reluctance to see them come back because, say, this has become a Gentile thing and we want to keep it for ourselves. No. No, as, as, as they were in the same place that the Jews were today, at least the majority of the Jews, again, God's remnant had received the gospel, but the, 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 the larger grouping hadn't received the gospel. But yet the hope is that the Gentiles would so live as to spark within the hearts of the Jewish people jealousy, jealousy. Why would they be jealous of people that are just arrogant and proud and there's nothing in that to be jealous over, but as the people of God would abound in grace and love and bound in what is absolutely above what naturally we're capable of being, what naturally we're capable of doing, that gets the people of this world, even in their unbelief, to just take, stand up and take notice and say, how in the world is this? You don't seem to live the way other people do or think like other people do. And uh, your whole perspective is so different. What makes you to differ? Well, it's God. It's his grace. And we can tell them about the gospel. It opens up those doors of entry. It just, uh, you know, if the the ears of the unbeliever is stuffed and doesn't want to hear the gospel, sometimes what they see in the lives of God's people that brings them to ask the question of what is the hope that is within you. As I said, Paul's come to this point of conclusion of his argument, and now he gives himself to doxology. He gives himself to praise and worship and adoration of the God of heaven and earth. 
Before we get into the doxology, this, it's all the things that preachers aren't. It's all the things that we tend not to be. And I love good summaries. I, you know, love the cliff notes of all the great works of literature that I was supposed to read in high school and didn't. But got the cliff notes, got the summary, got the idea. It says an adult that read all those books and understand their worth. But as a, as a, as a teenager, no, I, I didn't really. But I love summaries, so this is a good one. Um, this is from Colin Cruz's commentary on the letter to the Romans, published in the Pillar New Testament Commentaries by Erdmans. And uh, Colin Cruz says this, He has shown, that is Paul, his sacrifice for their sins, thus showing not only his great love for humanity, but also his justice in justifying sinners who put their faith in his Son. Paul has shown that this law-free gospel does not lead to moral anarchy, as some have suggested, nor does it imply that the law itself is the problem. In fact, the law-free gospel actually enables people to fulfill the just requirement of the law. He has shown that his gospel does not negate the place of Israel. And you see what he's doing. He's just going through all the, all, all the chapters and just giving the summary of the matter. And it's good. It's precise. It's right. It's, it's dead on. I should read it to you again. <laughs> I should read it for myself several times. He's shown also that the gospel does not negate the place of Israel in the purposes of God. Nor does it imply that God's word has failed or that he has rejected the Jewish people. In doing so, he spells out the scope of God's dealings with Israel and the Gentiles, bringing blessing to the Gentiles out of the disobedience of the Jews. And in turn, bringing blessing to the Jews by blessing the Gentiles. Paul's response to all this is a great doxology in which he celebrates the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God, the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, the one who is worthy of eternal praise and glory. Great statement of the heart of the substance of the book of Romans. And I hope it's been a blessing. And uh, if you want a copy, I'll give you a copy of this. He gives you verses here too, so you can look at it, look up. <laughs> at the end of the statement, he gives you the section of the, of the letter that he's referring to. Well, we do want to come on this morning and we want to look at the doxology that is in verse 33. And not properly, the, the, the doxology is uh, those things that are more or less address directly to God. To him be the glory forever and ever, or to you be the glory forever and ever, as you find it often in the book of the Psalms. It, it's a word that speaks of the divine excellence, the divine perfections, and... Um, but this whole section that concludes in the words of the direct doxology is concerned to give something of a nicomium, something of a word of praise that uh, addresses God's at the, the attributes of God. And, and some of the translations differ uh, depending upon whether you think Paul is talking about two things or three things. Um, a lot of the translations would take the word riches and make it something of an adjective of the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So it's the wisdom and knowledge of God that's put, taking central stage, and riches simply modifies it. It's an abundant wisdom, it's a rich wisdom, it's a deep wisdom, it's an abundant wisdom, it's a rich wisdom, and it's a rich knowledge. But actually, Paul is actually 
taking riches and I think he's placing it on its own. He's making it uh, what's called a substantive, uh, an adjective that stands on its own as a, a noun. Um, he's talking about the depths of divine riches, that there's riches that are present in the nature of God, in the attributes of God, in the perfections of God. Uh, it's exceedingly great. It's, it's, he's going to talk about uh, things past tracing out, things that are just unsearchable. Well, God's being is unsearchable. The riches of that being is unsearchable. And, and Paul is not, uh, it's not the only place that he does this, uh, magnify the riches of God. He does it in the Ephesian letter in, in a context very similar to what you have here in the book of Romans. Uh, we looked at this passage last week. I didn't say everything about it that perhaps could be said or should be said, but at least I pointed you to the fact that Paul is concerned to unravel something of the mystery that he as a gospel minister has received by, um, by, the, uh, by the Lord. Uh, he's given the stewardship uh, of God's grace. And by mystery, he says in verse 3, listen, um, we're, 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 the, we're the top dog, we're the chief people, and Gentiles will come into Israel's blessings, but in a different way. Uh, we're the teachers, we're the leaders, we're the people in charge. And that's not how it was done. In fact, most of the Gentiles, the Jews, did not believe. They didn't receive the blessings of this salvation, but that did not hinder God from accomplishing his will and purpose, both of Israel's salvation and of the salvation of the Gentiles. And this mystery is given to Paul by revelation. Um, when you read this, you can see this in verse 4 of chapter 3. You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other that Gentiles will be included in as something of a, maybe an afterthought, something of a, but not the heart of the thing, certainly not the equal footing. But the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. Not the... Stepchildren, not uh, not slaves, not uh, hangers-on, not uh, uh, people in some secondary status. No, fellow heirs. Full heirship belongs to Gentiles as well as Jews. Full inheritance rights belongs to Gentiles as well as Jews. Members of the same body. We're all members of the same body. We're not superior to one another. We all have our gifts for the good of the body. And we're part of the same body and called to serve one another in the body of Christ. Partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Not half partakers, but full participants. Full partakers of the promises of God in Christ through the gospel. This gospel, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which given given to me by the working of his power. Couldn't have come to Paul any other way. He would have persisted in his blindness and his obduracy and his hatred of Christ and Christ's people. He would have continued in his persecuting ways were it not the gift of God's grace that came to him by the working of his power. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches. The unsearchable riches. I got the privilege to tell the Gentiles just how abounding in riches is are for one small group of people living in a tiny corner of the earth. But God's purpose in calling that people was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. 
not in some secondary way, but with the primary blessings of the great salvation of God. Paul had the privilege to announce it, to announce Gentile inclusion, to announce that the word of the gospel was going to the Gentiles to bring them into the people of God on equal footing and to become part of the Israel of God, part of the covenant nation, part of Abraham's seed, part of the blessings of serving the Gentiles, uncircumcised dogs. He says, remember, verse 12, that you at that time were separated, cut off from Christ, cut off from Messiah, cut off from the promises of Messiah coming to be the one who would deliver you, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. For now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the full blessings of God's salvation has come to you. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members in full standing. That's my addition of the household of God. Full members and full standing in the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Paul says this is unsearchable riches. You can't trace it all out. It's, it's so wondrous. It's so astounding. It's so unexpected. It's so amazing. It's unsearchable riches. To bring to light, he says, and then back to chapter 3 and verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. What is the plan of the mystery, the hidden mystery, the hidden purposes of God for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, through the church, through this gathering together of a people, an assembly of people, not just Jewish, not just all the same ethnic background and ancestry and all common things and all common practices, but then this motley gathering of, of differences, this, this motley gathering of differences where we're not alike and our cultural backgrounds are not the same and our preferences are, are vastly different. Yet through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Satan thought he could defeat Christ through his death, but his death actually accomplishes the reconciliation of the world. And all the rulers and powers and authorities in heavenly places, probably demonic forces he's referring to there, or angelic forces, whatever they be, he says, this is according to the eternal purpose he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom we have boldness and access. That all of us, Jew, Gentile alike, as he says in chapter 2, have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And Paul sees this as riches. He sees this as riches. And it's riches that God bestows upon the nations, yes. But it's also riches that he bestows upon his son. I think there's something of the unsearchable riches of Christ in that Christ's own ministry and work is magnified by the fact that it's not provincial, it's not 
directed to a few people in some far off corner of the world. But Christ has a people in every kindred, nation, tongue, and tribe. In the, I believe it's the 49th chapter of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49, um, you have something of God's assessment of what it would mean if, if Jesus was simply the Messiah of Israel, end of story, just the Messiah of one nation, end of story. It's that God says in verse 6, here's God's own assessment upon such a scenario. I mean, we think it would be what a wondrous thing if, if Jews were received and Jews were made Christians and Jews believed. And, and God says, yeah, but, but there's something else to be considered. It's wonderful, be a wonderful thing if Jews came to faith, but where would the Gentiles come in? Well, there's a sense in which now the door is opened. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's a thing for all the nations. Again, Jewish resistance would have stood at the door. I mean, Jewish resistance did stand in the door and sought to say, well, hey, Gentiles must first become Jews. That whole problem with the Judaizers, remember? In Galatians, you must be first circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That would have been the, the story if this thing was just placed in the hands of the rabbinical authorities, the Pharisees and the scribes. They would have been resistant to such a thing as Gentile inclusion. But God desires Gentile inclusion genuinely and really. Because he says it's too light a thing. It's too small a thing. That you, he's talking to his servant, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. In and of itself, it would be remarkable. In and of itself, to take a bunch of people who are hard-hearted, stiff-necked, with such a pattern and history of apostasy and idolatry and perversion of, of true religion. If you raised them up and you brought them back, man, oh man, that would be time to have a glory fit. That God says, that's not sufficient for my servant. That's not sufficient for the one who I have sent into the world to be the world's savior and not just the savior of one nation. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's not just the salvation that's there in Canaan or in Jerusalem or in Israel. It's not just that all the nations need to flock to the Middle East to come to the center becoming Jews, or it's a worldwide religion. And God's purpose is that his son would rule over all the nations. That Jesus would have, say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, not just to reign in Jerusalem, but to reign over the earth as the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. And yet when you think of God's vision, it's so much greater than, I mean, some of our dispensational brethren that just want to get back to Israel. They just want to get back to Canaan. They want to get back to an earthly temple. They want to get back to so many things. They just wonder, don't they see the, the glory of what's at stake here? Don't they see how what God is doing is so much greater in God's God's concern about the salvation of Israel? But God's concern is universal. God's concern is, is not provincial. It's universal. And so that's Paul's point. That's what Paul is saying. And we want all Israel to be saved. All the, the Jews that come to faith in Christ, that they'd be abounding and numerous and wondrous. 
But again, the, the real point is something just a bit bigger, just a bit bigger, unsearchable, unsearchable riches of Christ that comes to all the nations of the earth. Too small a thing to be limited. Has to be this big picture as God sets it forth to us in his word. Well, back to Romans 11. Paul extols the riches. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. You you can't plumb the, the depth of it. They say that no one's ever been to the bottom of Lake Minnow. No one's ever been to the bottom of it. No one's ever been to the bottom of the riches that God has in Christ. It's, the depths are, are immense and infinite. So the riches are, are, are the first thing that Paul extols. And then he extols the wisdom of all of this. How God's wisdom is so much greater than man's wisdom. What man would have figured out, what man would have come up with if they were assigned to figure out the way in which the world would be saved and the nations would come to the faith of Israel, they would have messed it up major league. But God's purpose is truly wise, truly filled with skills. God, we should magnify the God of riches, of wisdom, and of knowledge. And then he ascribes to this the riches, wisdom, and knowledge, unsearchability. Uh, some of these things, it's, it's hard to figure out where the differences lie. Paul's de- really dealing with synonyms. He's dealing with synonyms that really stretch the mind, really stretch our ability to... Um, you just can't put it within measurable dimensions. It's immeasurable. It's beyond our ability to calculate. It's beyond our ability to see the end of it, to see the fullness of it. I'm thinking of a series of detective novels that I started to read. My wife got into the Vera series on Britbox, and so I found out there was a bunch of books about Vera. Uh, written by Anne Cleves. She also wrote the Shetland books. But anyway, I started to read this, and, and one of the Vera, who's just this detective with just amazing ability to come up with the answers of who did the crime and why they did it, and, uh, is that she often laments, I don't see the full picture. I don't see the full picture. I'm just not getting in my mind into the full picture. In order to figure out the, the end of the story or who the... The, the, the criminal was she, she saw the need to, to have this fullness of, of, of picture and again that's, that's we call those mystery novels or detective novels trying to figure out the answers but God figures out the answers because he sees the whole thing he sees the whole picture there's nothing hidden from his sight there's nothing he doesn't know about this and so he can come up with the answer having uh, I mean being the you know if you think Sherlock Holmes was something, or if you think that uh, Hercule Poirot with the, 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 the tiny gray cells were something, uh, just think of who, what God is. Infinite wisdom, infinite understanding. And so his judgments see the whole picture. Inscrutable are his ways. 
And, and then what Paul does is he often does throughout the book of Romans is he, he quotes the, the Old Testament. He quotes, uh, the first quotation is from the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his, his counselor? And I want you to see the context in which this is, this is given. It's in Isaiah chapter 40. This matter of um, knowing the mind of the Lord or giving counsel to God. And um, this is in the light of the return from Babylonian captivity. Um, it's funny, I was talking to uh, Drew Grumbles up in Albany. Uh, he ministers in Albany. We were in Dolgeville for a pastor's meeting. He was telling me of these, I asked him, what are the books on Isaiah that you really appreciate? And he told me a couple of these books, and he, t- he told me something I had not known, that among a certain group of evangelicals, that there is a view that tries to see everything in the book of Isaiah on the background of the Assyrian invasion, and doesn't see Babylon at all. So, of course, I raised up my objections to that. But I think that uh, that's clearly wrong. I-, I just cannot see that that's the case at all. Uh, this is not the end of the Assyrian captivity. That led to the uh, destruction of the northern kingdom. But here's the return to Jerusalem. This is, this is Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem was assailed by the Assyrians, but God protected it. They never breached the actual walls of the city. You see that in Isaiah 38. They never actually breached the walls of the city. No one was really taken into captivity. The outlying areas, okay, the Assyrians devastated a lot of that. They, they destroyed the city of Lachish. They, they destroyed many, many um, uh, places, but uh, not Jerusalem. But here, Jerusalem's warfare has ended. And I don't think it's just the attack that you read about in 38. I think it's the actual return from the people being brought into captivity in Babylon, which, of course, you read about in... Um, Actually, 39, where the Babylonian uh, an embassy from Babylon comes to uh, Jerusalem, and uh, Hezekiah shows them everything. He <laughs> shows them where the treasures are, shows them um, everything about his house. And um, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. This is in 39, verse 6. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. I mean, to say that Babylon is not in view is just, to me, um, well, it's wanting to argue for a certain point of view. What they want to do is they want to say that Isaiah of Jerusalem in the 8th century uh, said, wrote all these words, and uh, you know, modern people would say, well, maybe somebody a little bit later, maybe in the school of Isaiah, all kinds of things. It has to do with authorship has to do with upholding what they, people think that the inspiration of scripture demands in terms of authorship. I don't agree uh, what they think authorship demands or what inspiration of scripture demands. And I don't have the answers to all questions having to do with who wrote what, when, and where. All I know is God's word. <laughs> That's what I'm confident about. I don't know all the answers to that. But I, I don't want to just, because I have an interest in um, protecting a certain view of inspiration, that uh, which I don't, that that you have to take the content and twist it. Here, I think it's clearly that the people of Israel were taken away and then they've returned, and in the return from Babylonian captivity, God is speaking tenderly to Jerusalem. And yes, this is the spirit of prophecy. This is something that happens um, many years later. Whether Isaiah of Jerusalem penned it, who knows. Uh, there's all kinds of pros and cons, this and that, that I'd never get into. 
I just get into the fact that this is God's word telling us that Jerusalem, having been taken into captivity and being restored, is to take comfort in its God. That's, that's what I see the message is here. And um, with respect to the whole matter of um, the comfort that God gives, it's comfort that comes from the God who rules heaven and earth, the God of creation, the God who comes and redeems his people with all authority and all power and all wisdom and all strength and all omnicompetency, let's put it that way, full competency over all things. Go up on a high mountain, verse 9. Lift up your voice, herald of good news. Jerusalem, herald of good news. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him. His recompense before him. He'll tend his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And then this is this big picture of the God who is the shepherd of his people, who takes his people up into his arms, who cares for them and nurtures them and loves them and provides for them. Who has measured the waters in the... I'm sorry, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Think of the ocean and all the waters of, of the earth. And think of the hollow of someone's hand. That's the hollow of the hand. You know, you try to capture water into the hollow of your hand. How much water can you hold into the hollow of your hand? Well, not a whole lot. But God measures the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. That's how immense God is. That's the point. See the immensity of this God who's measured the waters of the hollow, in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens with a span. I think the span is the, is, is the, is the span of the one's hand. God's hand has measured the heavens. <laughs> I mean, how great is God? How great is God? I mean, that's the picture. The picture is a limitless being. A limitless being who can measure the waters in the hollow of his hand and mark off the heavens with the span of his hand. And to close the dust of the earth in a measure, weigh the mountains and scales and the hills and abouts. Go weigh the mountain out there. <laughs> go, go figure out how, how, how dense it is and how immense it is. No, you're not going to do it. You can't weigh it in, the, in scales. Who's measured the Spirit of the Lord? Who's measured the Spirit of the Lord? Who can define limits to the Spirit of the Lord? There are no limits. Or what man shows him counsel? Does God stand in need of human wisdom to come alongside of him and say, Lord, I, I think I have an improvement on the way that you rule the world. I think I have some ideas. So, yeah, let's sit down and talk. How absurd. How absolutely absurd. Again, this is a God of omnicompetence, full competence. He doesn't stand in need of someone coming alongside and being his counselor. What man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Showed him the way of understanding? It's, it's so foolish. It's so foolish. Verse 18, to what then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? The folly of idolatry when you consider just who God is. But the folly of human wisdom, thinking he could figure things out better than God and have a plan that's better than God. God thought of all the, all the variables and he's come up with his plan and purpose that's absolutely 
impeccable. Absolutely without, without fault. You can't find fault with God's plan. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's gone up to him to give him counsel? And then I think it's the 41, 41st uh, chapter of uh, Job. Uh, I'm not going to look there because our time is really perhaps going to... Maybe I will read it at least. Uh, Job 41. Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? I mean, has God put us into his employ that we can put in our service in a way that will add to him and supply for him something he lacks so that he now is in debt to us. He now is to repay us. And we'll see if we can find the exact uh, passage. It's in the 41st chapter. Again, this is the whole picture of the, you know, God's answer to Job's, to Job's complaint. God's answer is simply, where were you? What's that? Eleven. Eleven, thank you. Yeah, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? What, what did you give to me? I supplied all of the world with all of its fullness so that all of, every creature depends upon me. I own all things. And I'm a possessor of all things. Who is first given to me, verse 11, that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. He owns heaven and earth. He possesses heaven and earth. And there's nothing we have given to God that requires God to give us in return. Everything we have from God is his free gift. It's a principle of free grace. It's not God who stands in need that we supply his need. God has no needs. God is fully complete and full in all of his blessedness and all of his fullness. He didn't create us because he was lonely and we can supply some answers to divine loneliness. No. God created us so that we might be given his fullness. He said we would receive. It's not that he received something from us. We receive from him the fullness of his blessedness that he designs and desires to share for whatever his reasons are. But it's an, on a principle of God giving and we receiving. And when we receive from his hand, he doesn't owe us a thing. Everything is upon a principle of grace. So I think Paul quotes it here at the end of Romans just basically to say this whole matter of divine omnicompetency, of divine wisdom, of the riches that he possesses and the knowledge and the wisdom that fashions his salvation in a way that is impeccable is given on a principle of his grace where we don't make him our debtor or that God is accountable to us or that he owes us an explanation of his ways. He's not our debtor. We're debtors to him. We're debtors to his grace. So it's the principle of debt that we owe him and nothing that he owes to us. And then the conclusion is, again, this word of direct doxology for from him as source, through him, perhaps as means, and to him as goal and end are all things. Are all things. 
To him be glory forever. Amen. Now there's lots of passages in scripture in which uh, God is source and Christ is means just comes to the fore. You think of creation where it says in uh, John all things were made through him. And without him was nothing made that was made. Uh, and so Jesus is the, is the word through whom the world came into being. And so sometimes there's a Trinitarian focus on how in the what's called the economy that is God at work in the world in creation, in providence, in salvation there's something of an order of, 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 of operations that the triune God exhibits in which there is some at least prepositional distinctions that are sometimes made um, but the reality is that all of his operations are done by the, by the Trinity. It's the fullness of divine personage that does all the works of God. There's perfect unity in all that God does. And I don't know that there's necessity here in this particular doxology to say, well, from the Father uh, and through the Son or um, to the Spirit is a necessary inference. I, I don't think necessarily you read the, tri- the Trinity of Persons here. I mean, if you do that, I'm not going to complain. The Trinity is the truth of God's Word. I just think it's just telling us that the God who operates in terms of unified operations, God does what He does as one God. Yes, through the Son and by the Spirit, we know that. But that this word of dexology is not so much conscious of the distinctions of the person as in the unity of the being of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who does all of his operations well, does it wisely, does it fully, competently. So I really think that's what's at stake here, or what Paul's view here. And then to him, be glory forever. Amen. That everything that God does is tending towards his glory, but not in some kind of self-absorbed, self-centered way but in a way that brings his creatures to really share his glory. The end of the story for us as God's people is that we become sharers of his glory, that we are glorified together with him, that God's not um, self-absorbed. He's absorbed with his will and purpose that includes the blessings of countless thousands that he brings into the benefits of his grace and of his salvation. And so, again, God is glorified when he pours out his blessings upon his people so that we observe his counsel, we observe his, his, his words, and we enter into the wonder of knowing him and being crowned with his presence and his honor and with his glory. So, yes, to him be glory forever and ever, but in such a way as that glory is revealed to us. God's made known his glory, that we should be sharers of his glory. And that word glory, really throughout the 15th chapter, it's interesting how that word glory gets repeated again and again and again. It says in chapter 15 and verse 7, this whole matter again of Gentile inclusion and uh, how Jews and Gentiles regard one another and see one another and the attitudes they have towards one another. Um, he says in verse 7, 
Well, let's 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 back it up again. Another word of uh, kind of benediction. Here's not doxology so much as benediction. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. This is verse five of chapter fifteen to live in such harmony with one another. That's the end of what he's concerned about. This grouping of people that were so divided along ethnicities, lines of, of, of ethnic disharmony, that, that he would grant you the endurance, the encouragement to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. God's glory is revealed in his people experiencing the blessedness of his presence and peace, of an ability to together regard one another and welcome one another and help one another and encourage one another and together worship the Lord with one heart and with one accord. There's a couple of other references to God's glory um, in the succeeding passages. Uh, Maybe it's differences in translation. I thought of 9. I'm sorry, we did 9. 11. Well, it's just translated extol him. Let all the peoples extol him. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. I think that's Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Again, we have so much reason, having been the recipients of God's goodness and grace, to lift our hearts in glorifying Him and extolling Him. Again, as people that have received the knowledge of His grace and glory in the Lord Jesus, that we extend to Him the honors, the glory, the praise that He is deserving to receive. Well, anyway, uh, so we've come to the end of chapter 11 and uh, to the end of what oftentimes is considered Paul's doctrinal uh, exposition of the gospel. Um, And in chapter 12, we move on to the implications of it all. Chapter 12, we move on to what the Christian life is supposed to be like based upon what in the gospel God in Christ has done for his people, both Jew and Gentile, creating in himself one new humanity in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does that new humanity function? How do we live? How do we get on with one another? How do we serve God together? And um, there's so much good that's to be derived from seeing this, the, the practical outworking of, 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 of gospel truth and gospel reality in the final chapters of the letter. But uh, God willing, we'll begin that next Lord's Day. Uh, we have about four or five minutes left. Does anybody have a question? before we conclude this morning or a comment that you'd like to make. If not, we can't can't conclude early. We don't have to fill all of the time. Let's go before the presence of the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we're thankful for the privilege of opening up the scriptures, of understanding more and more of what, what a great God you are how wondrous you are, how kind and, and merciful and gracious you are. And you are a God whose attributes are beyond our ability to fathom. That you have riches untold. You have wisdom 
beyond our capacity to, to understand. You have knowledge that sees the fullness of the picture. And we're thankful that you possess these attributes, that you do all things well, that we stand marveling and amazed in your presence at the ways in which you have you've mapped out this great salvation that we have received in our Lord Jesus Christ. How you designed this salvation to be universal in its scope. How you designed this salvation to be not based upon what we do for you, but what you have done for us. And for all these realities, we, we marvel and we bless you and we praise you and we pray the end of the, the end of the day when we come to the end of all that Paul has instructed us to see and understand and believe that our hearts will be lifted up in praise. At the whole end of our doctrinal studies will be doxology that we would be able to say to, to you belongs the glory forever and ever. Amen. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.